Hello and welcome to Plotress. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing Chasing Cassandra by Lisa Kleypas. This was published in 2020 and is the sixth book in the Ravenel series. The last one before Devil in Disguise. Have we all, like, have we read all the Kleypas we are going to? I know there's some you've made me skip, but are there any that we haven't reviewed for the podcast that we plan to going forward? Maybe. So, uh, the jacket. Railway magnate Tom Severin is wealthy and powerful enough to satisfy any desire as soon as it arises. Anything or anyone is his for the asking. It should be simple to find the perfect wife. And from his first glimpse of Lady Cassandra Ravenel, he's determined to have her. But the beautiful and quick-witted Cassandra is equally determined to marry for love. The one thing he can't give. Everything except her. Severin is the most compelling and attractive man Cassandra has ever met, even if his heart is frozen. But she has no interest in living the fast-paced world of a ruthless man who always plays to win. When a newfound enemy nearly destroys Cassandra's reputation, Severin seizes the opportunity he's been waiting for. As always, he gets what he wants. Or does he? There's one lesson Tom Severin has yet to learn from his new bride. Never underestimate a Ravenel. The chase for Cassandra's hand may be over, but the chase for her heart has only just begun. <laughs> this book jacket is not good. No. It makes it seem like they're going to get married in the, the prologue. So, a couple of issues here. He is not out searching for a wife. Mm -mm. He's not. So it's not like he's on the wife market and <laughs> on the wife market. decides she's the best one. Um, they also, this book is about getting her to agree to marry him. Yeah. Yep. I would actually argue there's very little conflict. And you're right. This jacket makes it sound like this book is about, okay, they get married, but then their marriage is in trouble because of right. his la lack of affection. And that this is going to be a marriage in crisis book, which it is not. Which it is not. No, and this book, this book is very, I feel like it's going to be talked about, honestly. Because there's not much plot, the structure is very weird. And so while we try to avoid spoilers, there's sort of so little that happens. Well, I feel like most of it is already spoiled in the book jacket because there's not much additional that happens. Yeah. Like, really? There really isn't a lot more that happens. Right. Getting her to a degree to getting her to a degree, getting her to agree is the plot. And yeah. there's a couple of specifics left out, but like, it's pretty much it. She's yeah. forced to say yes by circumstances, even though she's into him. Well, as usual, we generated a random number and then we use that random number to write our own summaries. And for this episode, that random number was two. We both took some liberties in, in interpreting what two meant. Meg took more liberties than I did. I did. <laughs> Meg, what's your summary? It's Tom plus Cassandra equals infinity. But everything other than Tom and Cassandra are symbols. <laughs> Nailed it. Not, totally. Uh, so Meg established in her book that the two main characters end up together. I'm sorry, in her summary, that the two main characters end up together. Uh, I also want to point out that Tom's a mathematician. 
He's an engineer. Yeah, but he's like really into math. Yeah. And so I feel like I captured the essence of his character. Definitely. <laughs> With that one symbol. Yes, I do. Uh, and my two-word summary is second season syndrome. The second season is hyphenated, which does mean it's one word. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and I, that, it's a play on several things. Because her big stress is she's in her second season. Yep. But I also sort of feel like Sleep has had second season syndrome writing this novel. Mm-hmm. She's the second twin. Mm-hmm. She also ends up one, with one of Devin's two best friends. Mm-hmm. I feel like there were fewer ideas going on here. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I guess St. Vincent isn't one of Devin's besties. No, but Rice. Reese. Reese. Sorry. Yes, but Pandora. Pandora doesn't, doesn't end up with but Reese. Hell, but, right. but like, right? What? She, yeah, no. She's the second twin, and it's the second one of his friends to be married off. Yes, the mm-hmm. first didn't marry the twin. But no, I know. And also, can I just mention how there's like the most heavy-handed symbolism in this book? I thought it was so stupid, but also so hilarious. Well, it's supposed to be insight to his character because he clearly has some sort of—he's not neurotypical. Yeah. What specifically makes him not neurotypical isn't super delved into, but he clearly doesn't have a handle on human emotions the way most people do. I don't think it's presented very well. I agree. And so she tries to get him to read books, and he misses the point entirely because he's neurodivergent. Yes, but I was also referring to Devin's symbolism and Mm. his... (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were talking about the books and Around the World in 80 Days and like how well, heavy-handed all that was. There's that, but then there's also Devin has a piece of art yes. that he has inherited from the former Earl. <laughs> I kind of love it. <laughs> my eyes are so far back in my head, you guys. <laughs> uh, what, are the, what are the tropes in this novel? I think the biggest one is class conflict. She doesn't view it as that. Right. Uh, I mean, the real... The conflict from a romance standpoint is he won't say he's in love and she demands love. Right. She wants to marry for love. He refuses to admit that he could even feel the emotion of love. And But then part two is she's a lady and he is a self-made man. Right. Uh, she has a big, crazy family and it's doubled in size since the beginning of the series. Obviously, actually, it's more than doubled in size because they found a long-lost member of the family <laughs> and and that person got married. So so the whole family's been married off to other people. And then they found someone, you know, a long lost bastard who is also married off. So now the, the family is far flung across England. Yep. And not only that, they're connected to the wallflowers. It's a whole thing. And I'm going to be completely honest, I kind of liked it a lot. I thought the references to previous books... And the wallflowers were way better handled here yes. than they were in the last one. Yes, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed all the cameo appearances. Uh, I really liked it all, actually. I thought, I thought the big crazy family structure was done much better here than in the Pandora book. Uh, I enjoyed it. So they both have daddy issues. Yeah, so we've established that all the Raven Elves have daddy issues. Their daddy sucked. <laughs> yes, um. their daddy sucked. <laughs> Sorry. And he was poor and his dad abandoned the family. Yeah, he has some some bad some family issues, but daddy issues mostly. Yeah. Oh, and not only that, his father figure ended up yep. not being such a great guy either. So. Yep. Yeah. A lot of a lot of issues there. He's not a sad tragic orphan, his mother's alive, but he effectively raised himself. Mm-hmm. So and there is a sad tragic orphan in the text, and she is a sad tragic orphan. So Sad tragic orphans. Yes. 
There is a contract negotiation, a relationship contract. Yes. So as we mentioned, he's trying to convince her to marry him. And when she finally does, one of her family stipulations is like, know what you're getting out of him going Mm -hmm. in. This is part of where I say his neurodivergence was not well portrayed. But um, so there's a whole chapter that's just back and forth alternating between between them making out and negotiating their marriage. And once again, not legally binding, not really focused on the finances, just on the like, what do you expect from me? Yeah. Now, I will say I kind of enjoyed it here because his whole his whole thing. So Tom Severin's whole thing is that he loves negotiating. He loves getting the better of the person he's negotiating with. It's a game to him. Uh, so I loved that he proposed doing a negotiation, but then also he, this is so ridiculous, but I loved it. He had learned that, okay, negotiation is not just a game. It's also a way of making a relationship, making or breaking a relationship with the the person that I'm negotiating with. Mm -hmm. And so I liked it. I liked that part. Um, I thought it did a good job of showing his character and his character development. So I did like, I actually really liked that chapter a lot. Um, Just a callback to the um, book jacket. Did you find her quick-witted? Not especially. Okay. And I think this would have been the scene to see it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I didn't either. Like, she's not dumb. No, she's not wrong. stupid or anything. But this isn't, like, a character known for her sharp tongue or her, like, no conversation skills. She's a nice, and she's secretly a lot more caustic than people think yes. she is. Let, let's, okay, one more trope, one final trope, and then I, I do want to talk about Cassandra. So, final trope, this is the Kleypas trope. Yeah. That he is a, came from nowhere, you know, street urchin mm-hmm. who is now one of the most powerful men in Britain who not only shapes, mm-hmm. you know, he's not just rich. He's not just rich the way Reese Winterborne is rich. He's rich in the way that he affects public policy and stuff like that. And he has money. I mean, ultimately she keeps making people progressively richer than the last rich guy. Right. So like I've completely lost context because Severin's the richest so far and Severin's Winterborne was rich yeah. and Westcliff was rich and like Simon was rich. Like at this point <laughs> we're talking about amounts of money one cannot fathom. Right. I mean, Ethan, even Ethan Ransom was rich. Yeah. Gosh. Gosh. Anyway, it's at this point I'm just enjoying it. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah, whatever. Self-made, whatever. Uh-huh. Sure. He rose from like literally no, from a father abandoning him at what age? Nine? Ten. Ten. To like, he's about, he's one of the most um, powerful men in Britain. Fine. Yeah. Whatever. That's cool. And that journey is not super mapped out for you? No, no. But I don't care. Me neither. <laughs> it's great. Let's talk about Cassandra. Like, let's talk about her. Yeah. Because in some ways I liked her a lot because... In a lot of romance novels, you have to have an interesting or progressive heroine. Almost like that's what we need as a modern reader to get into the book. Mm-hmm. But even in modern day, there are women who aren't necessarily super ambitious or um, super quirky, super unique. So one of the things I actually did like about Cassandra was that she has identified what she wants which is basically a conventional life. She wants to to fall in love, have kids, 
and, you know, enjoy a level of comfort in her life. And that's basically it. And I liked that she wasn't condemned for that. Yeah, I think we have to talk about the fact, similar to Pandora, I felt like she was a very different character Yeah. than she was in previous books. And I, it really stood out to me. It's funny. There, there's a little boy that yes. is in the text that they have to take care of at some point. And she sings him songs that yes. are clearly her and Pandora's exploits. And some of them are things... Like, it would have been cute if they were songs about what she and Pandora did as children. Mm -hmm. But they're songs about what she and Pandora did, like, three books ago. Well, there's, and they're songs that Pandora wrote. They're mm. not songs that Cassandra helped Pandora write. Right. Which I felt was a shame. It was, it, it was just an interesting thing to put in the text because it reminded me that Cassandra was a completely different character in this text. Well, and, all, like, how old is Cassandra? She's... 21, 22? Early 20s. Yeah. And Tom Severin is is at least 30. Yeah. Like, I think he's 30 years old. I, I mean, I guess eight years isn't that big of an age gap. But at the same time, I, I feel like when I was 22, a 30-year-old was kind of old. You know? Yeah. And Cassandra also has established she's not picky at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's sort of I mean she says she's not picky but she's picky but she ends up being picky which is fine like don't settle yeah well and then the other thing is Cassandra is treated in this book Cassandra Cassandra whatever as if she's like the incomparable yeah like she got five proposals last year and like she stops men dead in their tracks mouths agape like Venetia from the Fitzhugh trilogy yeah there and I don't feel like she was the normal one yeah. of her three sisters who were on the market that's like kind of how she was presented. Of her, Helen and Pandora, she was gregarious without being an eccentric. She was conventionally pretty, but like I didn't get the sense she was the seasons incomparable. And in this book, there are several men who like stop in their tracks. Yeah, there, there were a lot of things about Cassandra in the book, in this book, that didn't jive with the Cassandra of previous books. Yeah. A lot of things. So, and once again, we didn't love the Cassandra of previous books, but it definitely, you can't forget you've read it and it right. made certain things not really work here. Yeah. So Tom Severin says about himself that he feels five emotions and he doesn't want to feel more because these five are efficient. Basically, he can live his life most efficiently by feeling these five emotions. He doesn't actually tell me tell you which five they are, which is a shame because I would have been interested to find out. But they aren't shame. <laughs> One of them is not shame. <laughs> it must be about ambition. Is that an emotion? Content. I don't think he's ever felt that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he says that he's happier not being in love. He does feel happiness. Yes. Because he stopped feeling happiness. Right. He's clearly depressed. He's clearly depressed. He's clearly depressed and doesn't understand how to deal with it, which I don't find implausible. Sure. Uh, I, I wish there had been more attention paid to his, his specific way of interacting with the world, basically. And his motivations mm -hmm. and what was driving him. I thought one of the most defining things about his character in this book that made me like him way less was when he said he wanted to be known as a great 
philanthropist more than he wanted to be a great philanthropist. Yeah. I was thinking of like all the like people who are too rich in uh -huh. modern society. Like the way he phrases it, like I want to be recognized as more than I want to do it. I was like, that says so much about you. Well, all the things, like he's done all these things for people, but mostly to either raise his image uh, or allow him to do more um, like investment in railroading and stuff like that. Or to have something to lord over people. Right. So, yeah, I, anyway, I, I feel like there are books that have looked at neurodivergent characters in historical settings in a different way. Uh, I mean, the Sherry Thomas, Lady Sherlock series, uh, Charlotte is obviously on the autism spectrum. Um, and I think it's really examined in a really interesting way. There's another book, The Essex Serpent. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the characters in that book is also obviously in the autism spectrum. But anyway, it's very, I don't know if I recommend the book, but that specific character. We I recommend Lady Sherlock. Sherlock. We recommend Lady Sherlock. Not necessarily Autic Serpent. So I, I don't want to say that just because there's no language for it, you can't present it in a way that makes it comprehensible to a modern reader. It just, okay. I am not neurodivergent to my knowledge, so I don't want to offend anyone, but it seemed like his neurodivergence was a plot device that was discarded when it wasn't convenient. Well, exactly. Like th there would be traits of his where, so for example, he, he doesn't like to look people in the eyes for too long, um, but he will do it. So I don't know. It's like these things. And then by the end, he's like, anyway, I don't know. I just wish, I do wish that it had talked about, because he doesn't seem to have problems making friends, which is obviously something that people on the autism spectrum do. Like they have problems like actually making, forming close relationships. And he has tons of friends and he's able to identify people's motivations. And he, he is clearly yeah. good at reading people. Right. When he has to be. Yeah. And very bad at it. When he, when, yeah. When, when the works. plot calls for it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he was a fun character. I just feel like he wasn't a good example of a neurodivergent character. Yeah. If that's what he was supposed to be. Which I think, I think he, he was. was. But like we are reading between the lines here. It's not like it's ever stated. Yeah. So one of the things that was new about Cassandra in this book was her presentation as a full-figured heroine. Oh, I'm going to go on a full rant about this and offensiveness, so go okay. down. Well, we can skip it. No, because mine is more about diet culture than her okay. body, so go. Well, I just... I, I don't dislike having a character who is, who is fat or doesn't fit the the body norms that we're used to or that would have been of the time. Like, that's perfectly fine for me. That said, so this book, let's talk about the timeline of this book. There's a the timeline of this book. I'm hoping, is, can you explain it to me? I'm so confused. So it opens at Pandora's wedding. To St. Vincent. To St. Vincent. Be younger. Yeah. <laughs> Gabriel, Lord St. Vincent. And then it's like two months go by, and then and then it's West's wedding. Yes. But I feel like there was more than two months. But anyway, whatever. In those two months, apparently Cassandra has gained 12 pounds. 
which, okay, like, yeah, that's a lot of weight to gain, I guess, in two months, but also it doesn't make her fat. It's also not a plot point I'm interested in. Yeah. At all. Well, and that's something, anyway, so first of all, I just don't think it's very plausible that in all the previous books of the series, no mention is made of her weight. Or her body type, or... Anything. It's not... Anyway. And then in this book, it suddenly becomes a plot point. And it's, it's just weird to me. It's, I just didn't understand it. And it, it meshed with the timeline in weird ways. Yeah. Also... Any discussion of her weight, and like I said, I'll go into my diet culture rant later. She clearly just gained the weight in her boobs. Like, everyone who commented on her weight in an unhealthy way was just like, the top of your corset won't lace. Yeah. Or your bosom spilling out over your dress. And I'm like, yeah, I'm 100% sure that's what weight gain feels like. She gained weight, and it was all, yes, all in her upper chest. <laughs> upper chest. Thanks, <laughs> You're welcome. So, that's the other thing. So, the timeline was the other thing that kind of bugged me about this book, is that they, the, this book is, good, we have to complain about something, don't we? The book, uh, Devil's Daughter, we said we would have liked it if we had said, oh, if they meet at this wedding, then they're apart, then they meet, then they're apart. But that's what happened in this book. They meet at a wedding, then... Well, Grant, we said that, but we would have wanted it to be a novella. Yes. So that all the time apart got cut out. That's true. So, like, we don't, this, that's what happens here. But you have to read about all the time when they're apart. There are so many chapters that start with, in the past four weeks, Tom had been in a really bad mood. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> four weeks have gone by? <laughs> and I mean, he meets her and spends like total of maybe two hours with her. And in those two hours, so in those two hours, he goes from, I want this woman, I want to marry her, to, mm-mm, better not marry her because she's making me feel things. And then after that, it's like two months apart. But he still can't stop thinking about her. Their relationship dynamic was interesting. Yeah. I would have loved... He gets several, like, invitations to call that he never comes up on. Like, even just a couple of, yes. like, he comes over for dinner. Yes. Would have done a lot for this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Where... He, maybe he, that first time where he's like, never mind, we can't be friends. Maybe he's like, okay, look, I have decided, you decided we, we shouldn't get married and I agree with you. And then he tried to pull it back to some kind of friendship thing. I would have, I think, been more interested to read about that mm -hmm. than about him making some business decisions. Yep. So. Or taking in a foundling. Yeah. I mean, or he finds a foundling and then he's like, I can ask Cassandra for help with this, which he doesn't do. Right. Yeah. Anyway, timeline was tough. I, I, I mean, you know, if you've listened to this, to our podcast before, my preference is not that our uh, main characters be separated for a lot of the book. Yes. And they are. They are. I would also just make a, as we mentioned with the jacket, this book is he can't feel love. It's the only thing she demands of a future husband. So even though she says she's not picky, she's not willing to consider his suit until scandal befalls her. Once again, I'm summarizing the jacket here, people. Mm -hmm. 
And then he manages to come to the rescue and convinces her, like, marry me and you'll be fine. And then they negotiate their contract and then they're... Like, there's just... There's not... There's not a conflict between them preventing them from socializing. Right. From being in the same room. From right. having more interactions. I just... I needed more of a reason that I was reading so many chapters of them not together. Of them not together. Yeah, I agree. That said, I will say that Claypus is a good writer. It's yeah. just easy to read. Like, there's nothing in her prose that I was annoyed at. Yeah. So I just want to point out that I feel like a lot of the times we are a little more critical of her because she's capable of a lot. Yeah. That said, I got a list for content warnings. Okay, let's do it. First of all, this bad dude that gets her in a situation where she is compromised, she's sexually assaulted. She is. And it is real casual. Mm-hmm. So, it's, I will say that it is handled as an assault. It's handled as something that she did not consent to and did not want. Uh, she didn't try to form a relationship with him afterwards, and she also did not keep it a secret from her family. So those are all things that I appreciated. But then the guy does the verbal Victorian era equivalent of revenge porn of her sexual assault. Mm-hmm. He sure does. And the Ravenels decide to take care of it and just the, everything stemming from this situation I don't think was treated seriously. Like it's treated mm. like a sexual assault. Yeah. But she never really thinks about it again right. or has like thinks about its impact right. on her. You know, it's all just sort of a, a plot point where they even make a passing reference to he will be reaccepted in society at some point. Right. He's taken care of by the family off screen. Right. It just, it didn't add anything to the plot other than to give her a reason to have to settle. Right. Would you have preferred it if he hadn't actually assaulted her, but then lambasted her? Reputation? Uh, yeah, I mean, they'd already set up in the book right. that she had this reputation for refusing proposals. Right. I don't understand why they needed to up the ante by showing her being sexually assaulted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I agree. It wasn't... It did not add a lot to yeah. the book. Uh, next thing, Meg already talked about her being a full-figured heroine. The way diet culture is dealt with in this book, I found very problematic, and I would want to warn anyone with a sensitivity toward eating disorders that you are likely to be triggered by this book. Mm -hmm. um, she thinks a lot about her consumption of uh, sweets and sugar-based products, her chaperone and her makes comments about her weight and the sweet she's consuming. Mm -hmm. She's consciously monitoring. What, like She admits she's a stress eater and beats herself up about mm -hmm. the food she's consuming. One of the reasons she eventually like jumps into his arms is he's like, you're still hot gaining 10 pounds. And you I, could even gain 30 pounds and I would still think you're hot. Which like the whole point, I think, of an anti-diet culture and fat acceptance, which once again, coming at this from a perspective of somebody who is not an activist in this space and has never gone through this, you know, is we put too much emphasis on attractiveness. Right. And you know, what we consider to be an attractive person and how narrow that mold is and why are we even obsessing about attractiveness? So I just think this book handles everything to do with her weight gain, her food consumption, her diet, her looks very badly. And I almost feel like she becomes Venetia from Fitzhugh to like level of hot. Right. As a way to like have a subtle commentary of big girls, which she isn't even, can be attractive too. Yeah. And like, 
women are concerned with her weight, but men like a big chest. Like, oh yeah, this book doesn't go as far as to say all of that, but it was so heavily implied. I found everything to do with her body pretty gross. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't love it, and I. Yeah, yeah, I, I honestly can't add more to your rant because I think I already talked about some of my issues. Before, yeah. So. So Basil. So Basil is a young street urchin who is taken in by Tom reluctantly. And he is, so Tom, again, like I said, reluctantly takes him in. And then as time goes on, Tom takes on more and more of the care for him. But it, goes to point out that Basil has been basically abused his entire life. And then of course it becomes a plot point for Tom to reflect on his time as a child and you know, how he was treated. Yeah. So I would say this wasn't handled particularly poorly no. in terms of like, this is not like a trigger warning for child abuse. It's just a casual plot device. Yeah. So like if you don't want to hear any mention of a mistreated child, and if you, I don't know, if you see a mistreated child, if you want him treated as more than a plot device, yeah, not going to happen here. No, not going to happen. Um, also, I'm adding mine. There's a lot of foot stuff in this book. <laughs> Regular listeners will know I am disgusted by foot stuff, especially in sex scenes. And there is a sexy foot massage and I was throwing up in my mouth a little. It, it doesn't bother me at all. Like, I like foot massages. That said, now that I have to read these books, knowing that I'm going to discuss it with Lane, I keep thinking to myself, ew, like her stockings must smell really bad. <laughs> no, like he's, <laughs> he's giving her a foot massage while sta staring up her drawers. And then he goes right from touching her feet to her vagina. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, there's a slight intervening step, but no, he doesn't wash his hands or anything. <laughs> I'm very upset about it. Uh, anyway, I clearly was pretty upset at certain points in this book. Yeah. It's not like the most offensive thing I've ever read, but there's two unforgivable things for me <laughs> in the text. And then you threw in a foot massage and I'm like, cool, thanks, Lisa Klepis. <laughs> so I'm taking it you didn't think it was super sexy. No, and one of what should have been the sexiest scenes where she's finally like jumping him mm -hmm. and they are like on the, they've made out a lot, but where they're finally like admitting they want to be together mm -hmm. and they're going to figure it out and she's real turned on by him or whatever. He brings her to orgasm. Yeah. And then while she is coming and while he is actively touching her, her guardian attempts to enter the room and they both <laughs> have to have a conversation with her guardian while she is orgasming. Yeah. And it's Funny. I thought it was funny, but weird. Yeah. Like it made it not sexy. Right. It was funny, but weird. Well, it, yeah, I, I, I wish, I wish that Clapus had made it clear that she orgasmed and then Devin knocked on the door. And she was still in a state of deja vu right. or whatever. Yeah. 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 It didn't need to be like, you can leave <laughs> while trying not to moan. Like, <laughs> Good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I will say that Clapus is doing such a good job with enthusiastic consent these days. Yes. I just want to point it out. She does a really good job with him, like, 
making sure that she's okay with everything and she is making sure that he is okay with everything. I just want to say that because this is something that we have talked about her not doing super well in the past. Yeah. And sort of had that, what what do they call it? That forced seduction technique, which... That's an ugly series of words. Well, I mean, Ooh. but that's, I mean, that's what, anyway. Yeah. That it's, it was a thing, it's a thing in some books, mm-hmm. which... I, and I understand why some people think it's very sexy and yeah. like reading about it. No, and there are times even where I will admit that the idea of not being in control can be sexy. Right. And so there's a line, right? At what point is it sexy, but you can acknowledge it's problematic? And at what point does it go too far? Right. That said, I, I just want to praise Clapus for really, I think, probably responding to fans and the way the romance genre is evolving yeah. to, to go for that. And that said, she actually uses the phrase enthusiastic consent in one of the encounters, which I was very tickled by. I yes. enjoyed it. I will say, I found this book, I think, a lot sexier than Lane did. Okay. I thought it was pretty sexy. So um, there was foot stuff. Yeah, which she can't, she didn't, she couldn't handle. But they had sex like on this really luxurious railroad car, which I was kind of into. Yeah. I think the draw here was supposed to be that he found her irresistible from the moment he laid eyes on her and then expresses regret that he only liked her for her, her looks because mm-hmm. she, he actually likes her for her personality. <laughs> right. And I can be into that. But I think because her looks were all tied up in this weight stuff, combined with foot stuff, just like even the moments that should have been sexy to me, Mm -hmm. I ultimately was like, I bought the idea that they were really into each other, but something just kept me from really truly investing. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that I like, this is my second time reading the book, and I liked it more the second time. Okay. Uh, So I'll say the first time, I think I wasn't sure what to expect. And then this time, I think knowing that there were some issues that I had with the book, I was able to confront them a little bit easier. And, you know, one of the things we become adept at as romance readers is ignoring the stuff we don't like in the books we read. And so I was able to, to read past that. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't have a strong opinion on this book, if I'm being honest. Like, I don't like what I don't like. I won't be reading it again. Mm-hmm. I didn't say, I, this is not one where I'm like, it's so bad, skip it when you read the no. series. Like, this is totally middle of the road for me. Unless you have a particular sensitivity to any of the content warnings we talked about, like, it's probably worth reading if you're reading the series, just to not skip it. Yeah, and honestly, like we said, we think that all of the cameos and all of the callbacks to the other characters were handled really well yeah. in this one. Uh, I I liked that there were references to the Wallflower books, but that none of the Wallflowers or their heroes appeared. I liked it a lot, actually. (laughs) That's the level of callback I'm here for. Thank you guys so much for listening. We would love it if you would rate, review, subscribe. Check us out around the internet on Goodreads or Instagram at Plotrists.